Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. This episode is made possible by one of my favorite family-owned companies. Blue Sky Furled Leaders are designed for anglers who want a long-lasting leader. Blue Sky Leaders are measured by the season, while the life of conventional mono-leaders can often be measured in days or even minutes. Each of Blue Sky's furled tapered leaders are hand-woven in the USA from over 90 feet of premium nylon material. From here, they are individually inspected and tested before packaging to ensure the highest quality standards. Check them out at www.blueskyfly.com. Woldridge family has been making boats for over 100 years. Admittedly a Woldridge fan since my days of guiding on the Fraser River for salmon and sturgeon, I was excited to have Grant on the show to share his family story and to explain why the Woldridge boat design is so legendary. I met him at their Washington factory to steal him away from production for an hour. Seattle. This is this is where I was born. I was born and raised here. Um, it's not necessarily where my family comes from, and I can tell you more about that. But yeah. Now you were born into the Woldridge family. Correct. <laughs> your dad is Glenn Woldridge. Yep. And your grandfather was. My grandfather's Bob Woldridge, and he's the son of my great grandfather, obviously Glenn Woldridge Senior, who my father's named after. 
So who started the boating company? Well, that would be my, my great-grandfather, and uh, actually 100 years ago this year, he grew up in Grants Pass, uh, which is a little town in Oregon on the, on the Rogue River. Is that what you're named after? Uh, I'm actually, I get asked that quite a bit. So my grandfather, Bob, is married, obviously, to his wife, Anne, and her father's maiden name was Grant. And he was uh-huh. a great man, an outdoorsman, a logger, a fisher, and a hunter. And so I'm named after him, Grandpa Grant. We're in the factory right now. I'm looking around. I see the most amazing black and white photos. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering if you could give me a little bit of a history on the company. Sure. Great grandpa, um, Glenn Woldridge, grew up on the Rogue. And as a little boy, uh, loved going down to the water and tossing a little chunk of wood in and watching it float down and seeing what it would do and watched loved watching all the fishing going on and one day when he was a teenager about the age of 15 or 16 I believe it was him and a buddy thought it would be quite an adventure to see where this river went everyone knew it made it to the coast but no one really knew what it was like there was no documenting of what this river was like what kind of canyons what kind of waterfalls if any it had and so him and his buddy pulled together six bucks um, bought some lumber built a boat the best they knew how, right? Yeah. I mean, where would they get these designs? Who knows? They're just looking at stuff, right? And they set off on adventure, packed some lunch, I suppose, and some clothes, and who knows? See you later, Mom and Dad. We're going to put this boat in the river of no return and go. I mean, and drifting. Just drifting, yeah. Got Made some oars and went for it. Well, sure enough, they made it to Gold Beach at the coast and through lots of canyons and hauling the boat around rocks and areas that were impassable and hearing rumbles of whitewater below, having to hike down and see what they were in for. And, and on top of that, saw tons of fish and wild game and the deer and the bears. And they just, he fell in love with it. And when they got to the coast, they sold the boat and and gill netted for the summer and then hiked back to Grants Pass. And, and he says, whatever I do in this life, it's going to have to do with this river. And so the boating started as a means for him to do what he loved. It had nothing to do with, oh, I think I'll sell boats. That sounds like a good business. <laughs> right. It's just because it got him on the river where he loved to be. So that's how it started. So where does it go from there? Well, from there, you know, he, he started uh, floating down the river and enjoying it. And boy, a number of other people started to show interest, but were quite afraid because the river... It's it's a very unique river. I've been all the way down through the wild section, and there's some treacherous areas. It's canyon and jagged rocks, and and it's not big whitewater like you'd see in Idaho or something, but it's very different, and it's technical, and, and you've got to be a great oarman to, to get through and navigate through some of these areas. And, and so people would start to hire him to go on trips, and so he started doing that. He was a guide, and he he would take people down the down the down the road, whether it was just a fun float trip or a fishing trip or hunting trip, or he would haul um, as lodges begin to grow. He would haul gear to these lodges, and because he was a boatman who knew how to do it, and not many people did, and he wasn't afraid. And, and so he started doing that and took people like uh, Clark Gable, Ginger Rogers, Herbert Hoover, Zane Gray down the Rogue. And that's how Zane Gray so found the Rogue cool. and built a cabin and wrote a lot of stories <laughs> out of that cabin. And that's how it started. So people would go with him on the guided trips and, and he would keep building new boats as he figured out new things and hydrodynamics and what would perform better in the shape of bow that would navigate him through here and different rocker. So he'd build different boats and well... By golly, he was putting them to the test more than anybody else. So his boats were the best. And so anyone else who felt 
courage enough to start getting into it and wanted his boat. So that's how he started building, building the boats. How did you land in Washington? Well, you know, as, as great-grandpa got older in age and decided, I'm tired of building boats for people. I just want to have my own and fish and enjoy this. And he started, the, the boat company started kind of just, its pace slowed quite a bit. And he didn't really care to do much more and just loved, enjoyed being outside. And, and my grandfather at the time, Bob, had moved to Seattle just because he was he liked to travel and try new things at times he'd go to San Francisco or just for the heck of it drive somewhere and he'd driven to Seattle and just tried working and picked up a job up here and he had met my grandmother and, and they'd got married and he felt like uh, he, he wanted to have his own business he knew that and he actually had a tire business for a while and there came a point that he, he says he felt like the Lord told him he should start the boat business up here and, and uh, he, he wanted the blessing from his dad and his brother because his brother was doing a little bit of it down there too and so he went and talked to them both separately and he said before I even talked to them he says if, if either one of them were to say no I wouldn't do it even if the other said yes so he went talking to both he says would you guys have any opposition to me continuing and doing the boat business in Seattle and both of them says we don't have a problem with it go for it and so that was 1973 when he uh, rented a little garage, literally not far from this shop right now, just a few blocks away. He rented a little garage, hired a guy to be a welder, and they started building the Woldridge boats here in Seattle in 73. Who was the main boat company at that time? <laughs> there, there really wasn't uh, any competition at all for, for aluminum boats of that nature. Um, and especially since... Our, especially in the jet boat world, Dick Stallman is the inventor of the outboard jet. He and my great-grandfather became great friends because Dick Stallman was an amazing man, an inventor and a genius. And he had a cabin on a river in California. And, uh, and, he, and, and, and I assume he banged up quite a few props because he started thinking, how am I going to get my family to and from this our cabin in low water, and he, he designed and invented the outboard jet that would connect to an engine, an outboard engine. And so this would make every river longer, as he would say. But he wanted to prove it in some real, real water, and, and that, I believe that led him to the Rogue. And uh, he talked to some, some people who says, if you're going to run this, you better go talk to talk to that crazy old man over there, Glenn Waldridge, and that's how they connected, and sure enough, there's a photo even up here in the in the showroom in 1962 of Dick Stallman in a boat with outboard jets following my great-grandfather up the road in 62, and so they became great friends, and, and, uh, and my great-grandfather was the first dealer for outboard jets, and so we had quite a history right right from the get as an outboard jet innovator and whatnot. And to jump ahead a little bit, it wasn't long. So my father, Glenn, was not in the business when my grandfather first started. My dad was off doing other things. And there came a point where my grandfather and this welder who he had hired, the guy was just all right, you know, and sometimes didn't show up and this and that, but it was happening. One day, uh, dad and my grandfather were talking and, and my grandfather says, Glenn, why don't you come to work for me? Because my dad had taken some Bowtech welding classes at a school. And my dad says, okay, when do you want me to start? My grandfather says, how about tomorrow? So sure enough, off they went. And that's how my dad got into it, which he had lots of innovations in, in the jet boat world and, and quite a few things that really, 
really made things jump. Can you explain how, how a jet engine is different than, say, prop? So your conventional outboard engine that anyone would see would would have a long um, fin at the bottom, which is called a skag, and you'd see a prop on the back, three, four blade usually, that spins and propels the boat through the water. Well, this thing hangs down at least a foot below the bottom of the boat, if not more in some cases, and so how are you going to run shallow without whacking this thing? And to actually back up a hair, my great-grandfather, well before the jet, came up with an invention called the outboard motor lift, which he kind of coined called the jackass lift, whatever, but that's what he called it. And there's ads that say it back in the old magazines, Popular Mechanics and whatnot. And we actually what, have, did it, what did it do? So what here's it what it did. So on a tiller engine for a prop, you obviously have this handle coming off that controls the steering and the throttle of, of, your, of your engine. Well, there was another long handle coming off of this lift he had that went back and it was like a scissor lift that placed the engine back 10 to 12 inches or so and had a mechanical advantage. You'd push down on this lever and the whole engine would raise straight up. And so you have your momentum, you're going through some deeper water in a river, you've got some good throttle going, but boy, here comes a little shallow riffle. So you got your momentum, give it some throttle, all of a sudden you come to the riffle, you push down on the, the lever to the outward motor lift and the motor would come straight up and come out of the water if you pushed it down far enough and there you go, you shuffle right over this, this, this shallow section and boom, you drop it back in and throttle it and off you go. So it was a two-handle deal, one handle on the engine, one handle on the, on the outboard motor lift and it was, it was a big deal back then. So that's how he got around the extra shallow sections was this invention that he made. And, and uh, he had some guys make them up for him. He designed it and whatnot. And again, I think there's, there's some great pictures out here in the showroom. But uh, so anyhow, then, so jumping back to the jet, what a jet is, so you take the lower unit, which unbolts from the engine, the lower unit being this, this fin and skag and the propeller, and that detaches, the drive shaft comes out, and there's numerous bolts, six to seven bolts at least on a modern engine, and that drops off. And then there's this jet unit, which is, so what a jet is, whether it's on an airplane or, or a water jet, is it, you know, it, it, there's an impeller which brings air or water in, compresses it, and forces it out the backside to create propulsion, okay? So what he was doing there, as an inventor, he has an impeller he created on the inside, an intake, which is the jet foot with a number of grill bars, which water would go in. This impeller would be directly connected to the drive shaft and force water around this bowl that looks kind of like a snail shell and compress it and shoot it out a hole out the back. So boy, what you gain here is instead of having to have a foot and a half of water, you could run in six inches or less at times, depending on proper setup, and now even shallower with some of Wooldridge's designs in, in the modern boat. So that was Dick Stallman's invention to, to get a jet, and that's that his was the his was the outboard that would work with outboard engines. There's also inboard jets, and uh, and, and a lot of those. Um, were originated uh, elsewhere, and one of the most common ones you'd hear would be like a Hamilton jet, which comes from New Zealand, and they, they've got some really neat ones there. That would be an inboard version. What's the advantage to having an inboard versus an outboard? Oh, there's lots of different reasons that a guy would have an inboard or an outboard, and, and, and we do both. Um, some of it's just preference if someone wants a V8 or likes a, a diesel or even there's some other inboard choices as well, where one of the bigger ones is um, big aerated white water, like you might find in, in Idaho and some places where you've got a canyon with, with fast flowing, deep water, class 
four plus rapids, not even have to be that, but fast moving water that has a lot of air in it. With a lot of the inboard jets, um, the impeller blade surface, there's more blade surface because many times the impeller's longer than or larger than it would be in an outboard jet and and it just has better traction in aerated water like having a a larger blade on a canoe oar Uh, if you have a narrow blade and you're able to power this thing through the water quickly you can see bubbles and like it aerates it cavitates you may not get as much thrust for the power that you're pushing back where if you had a a bigger blade boy you can get quite a bit more push because uh, it grabs the water better and that's a that's a big place where you see the popularity of an inboard with a with an inboard jet such as a Hamilton is as you can have more blade surface in the water on fast moving aerated water it's going to keep and maintain better traction climbing up through some of this big water than maybe an outboard jet though my great grandfather ran some of this quote unrunnable rapids back in the day with smaller 30, 50 horse props. <laughs> well, let's go there right now. Would you like to tell the story about your great-grandfather and the Rogue and, and how he managed to clear some space to be able to <laughs> Yeah, it was quite creative at the time and, and make it a little trouble today. But so, so what he did find when first floating down the Rogue was many areas Uh, including a popular spot that most people who are familiar with the Rogue would recognize as Blossom Bar. And we have a lot of photos here of the Rogue before my grandpa, I should say, great-grandfather, where the the river is literally unpassable. You couldn't get a boat through it. There would be a section 100 yards long that would look like a French drain, just rocks and boulders the size of trucks that literally you had to unload your entire boat carry all this stuff down the shore, have however many guys to hoist and haul this heavy boat back in the day. You know, when a boat was first built out of wood, it weighed a certain amount. As soon as it got in the water, it would soak up water and they got even heavier. And so you're hauling these boats down through the rocks and boy, when my great-grandfather was a tough guy, but there comes a point where you're like, there's got to be a better way around this. Well, he managed to get his hands on expired dynamite from <laughs> from the fish and game they would uh their expired dynamite kind of just would get handed off to great grandpa you know here you go toss it in the trunk and off he would go and he would blow these rocks out of the river um to make these areas passable we have some great video footage of some of this and, and my grandfather even tells stories as a kid being along on some of the dynamite adventures and and uh he says, if if there's if we didn't get far enough away from the blast and you start to feel rocks, don't look up. Cover your head and look down because the time you look up, you might get one right in the face. So. Oh my God. <laughs> and of course, this this comes with criticism, of course. But this is how long ago? Oh, this Over is sixty-seven. Oh yeah, years absolutely, ago? absolutely. And yeah, today, oh, it's unheard of. That just wouldn't happen. And and even as the end of my great grandfather's life, he. There's times where he says, you know, I, if I had to do all over again, I probably wouldn't have blown as many rocks out of that river. I made it too easy to, to yeah. navigate. And, uh, you know, but back then it was just a means of transportation. Here he's hauling goods and stuff to lodges and, and hauling meat to different families along the river and doing things, taking care of people. And, of course, doing what he loved was going down through the river. So it was a, it was a different time. You know, yeah, he was a trailblazer. He was a trailblazer. But you also just said something interesting. You know, you said that he was always helping other people, and 
and the Wooldridges are, you guys are pretty famous for this, and people who don't know you, you or your father or your grandfather, they just see you guys as a boat company. They don't know that you guys are some of the kindest people on the face of the planet. You know, you obviously have got a strong faith, and, um, and you practice it. You know, when I think of great Christian people I, who I would aspire to be like, it's you guys. So thank you for that. Well, and you managed to really achieve success by being truly, truly great people who stay true to your integrity. Yeah. If you talk to my grandfather or my father and asked us how we managed to be here and why we're still here, all of us would say that, uh, you know, the Lord has given us the grace and the ideas yeah, we, we've come up with some neat ideas, but if we didn't give him the credit, we'd be wrong. You know, he's he's just been, he's everything. And, and we're, we're definitely, that's a huge part of who we are. Yeah, you, it really is a huge part of who you guys are. And, and that became apparent to me the first time I spoke with you. And, and I definitely am not going to dwell on that because that, that is um, an entirely different conversation. But let's talk about the integrity of Wooldridge and, and how it shows in your boats. Sure. Well, one thing that's different about us than a lot of companies is you know we are a lot of companies that may have been family operated at one time may not be we we definitely are you know we're as i mentioned earlier 100 years old and we are family owned and operated and and so there there's something that goes along with having your name on the side of the boat you i think you take it a little extra care to make sure everything's right and we are still people and that uh, you know nothing can be perfect but but on the other hand you always take care of your clients you make sure things are taken care of well you, you do things right the first time and uh, you, you can never buy a good reputation so it's important to always always be mindful of that and and where's your reputation come from well a great product definitely but also how that person's treated after they've bought and gone out the door with your great product and um and if you talk to existing customers i believe they'd say the same thing and, and, it, and it goes to show in that i i can't even count how many repeat customers that we do have and i'm not just saying a second boat i mean i can think of numerous that have had four five six even seven or eight boats you know and just keep getting them and 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 what's cool about that which is such a blessing i would never thought before is is it's more than just the boat and someone buying it. Is we've got the opportunity to meet some incredible people, and actually, some of our lifelong friends are people who were once a customer, or maybe even still are, who has one of our boats. And boy, you sure get to know someone when you're truly building a custom boat for them, and, yeah, and they're yeah. involved in it, which everyone can be. And uh, it's it's actually one of the biggest blessings is the relationships that have come out of. You know, selling people boats. Well, let's talk about um, specs. Yeah. What is so special about the the specs of your boats and the construction of your boats, the materials, all of the all of the important bits that go behind building a quality jet boat? Well, there, there's quite a bit there, um, and, and and from construction is obviously a key one, and and depending on how a boat is constructed, will give you the byproduct of well how it handles and its efficiency and load hauling and, and all of the above. We've had numerous innovations over the years. The jet tunnel for the outboard was, was a very big one, which my father came up with in the early 80s. And does anyone else have a jet tunnel in their boats? Um, I, we were absolutely the first 
and we patented it at the time. And I have seen a couple others here and there that people have tried, and, and I've also seen them uh, not continue trying just due to, I could tell you why, just by looking at their tunnel. I mean, me having the experience I do, I can look at a tunnel and tell if it's going to perform right or not. It is so imperative that the shape of a tunnel, the shape of the boat leading to the tunnel and how the engine's mounted, if all those things don't align perfectly, a guy's way better off to not even have one. Because if if you do it wrong, you're going to have extremely poor performance. If you do it right, like ours, it's, it's literally unbeatable. I'll put it up against anything. Can you explain the tunnel? Yes. So, you know, obviously the jet was originated to help make a boat run shallow and a lot of boats at the time years ago and there's still some flat bottom boats these days but there's less than there used to be a lot of the jet boats were flat bottom and so what you have here is you have this huge nozzle of water at the back of a boat flat bottom boat so it's like having a uh, your garden hose spray in the on position attached to the back of a bar of soap on a black ice parking lot. I mean, you, how are you going to corner this thing? It's just blowing it all over the place. And that's been the nature and kind of an accepted performance style of a jet. You kind of got to start your corner way early and, and hope that it hooks up by the time you get to the point you need for it to grab and go through it. And you can just kind of have this drift. And, and we should explain for people who have never been in a jet boat before, um, at high speed like that, you take a corner and you're skidding and you can land in the canyon wall. It's very, very important that you're gripping. Well, absolutely. It's like, so why did we start jets in the first place? Well, to run through shallow, obstacle-laden water better, okay? So, and then you took away all of our performance. You have a flat-bottom boat, so it can't corner. And then you got this nozzle on the back without a skag like a prop that used to help you corner. And you got this nozzle trying to blow the rear end around. Wow, that sounds scary. So that, and that's what would happen. Here, you're shooting up an area, you turn it, and you just kind of drift. And then it grabs and everybody goes slamming to the one side of the boat and yeah you're lucky if you make it through there without bumping off a few things well between even my great-grandfather had some ideas as there he was doing you know tons more power boats at the time and 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 there's a lot of ideas he had that he hadn't quite gotten to and and uh, he had quite a bit of input when my grant or when my father wanted to go after the jet tunnel so my father's idea was let's eliminate or this flat bottom thing let's put some v in the boat so for even forgetting about the tunnel a boat with a little bit of v can at least lean in a corner like the boat inherently wants to if you try to turn a flat bottom boat a boat wants to lean but with its flat it can't so they hop and skip and slide and they grab with some v in it the boat will lean to one side or the other and hopefully you've designed and shaped that bottom so that when it leans to that side that side can grab and have some traction well then you integrate the tunnel so well let me back up a hair with some v in the boat we as we're traveling through chop or whatever um, air will now travel out to the sides because we have some v and so at the back of the boat in the center of a boat with some v that's where our cleanest water is going to be which is very much imperative with a jet you want clean water not a bunch of aerated water So now we integrate our tunnel. So what the tunnel is, it's not a big long deal like a lot of people would picture. It's it's actually at the most 12 inches long at the back of the boat and it scoops up and it's it what it allows us to do is raise the intake, the jet foot which the water comes into 
up at least it's about three inches higher than it would be on your conventional hull without a tunnel so we get this tucked up higher it's the the heel of the jet foot which is the lowest part is very close to even with the deepest part of the boat and so now we have something that right away just by being able to raise it three inches we know we can run for sure three inches shallower than another boat without one so it gained a shallow water ability shallow means zero though without the ability to corner hard because like we mentioned before who cares if you can run shallow if you can't make the corner and you end up on the bank so with the shape of our bottom which again I want to emphasize the shape of the bottom is very key and the tunnel you got this tunnel at the back with a couple walls on either side of it that when the boat goes into a corner those grab the water like a skag at the back where the water where this nozzle is trying to blow the rear end out so now we have some traction at the back where it's most important with the shape of the boat and the tunnel combined together man you have something that just corners hard in fact mid corner you can actually give this thing more throttle and 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 flat just hammer down where most boats there's absolutely a very fine line with how much throttle you can give it you can feel where it starts to break loose and in some cases you don't even have that warning it's just you gave it too much throttle the rear end has broken loose and then if you're in a technical spot in a river it can really be a, a bad day for you so with our boat the tunnel actually allows you to the harder the more throttle you give it the harder this boat corners without cavitation because the other thing that it's doing is forcing clean water into the intake of this of this jet foot which we also weld some fins on the side of the jet foot to help be an extension of the tunnel and force water in so in my opinion it's a must I don't see how you could run an outboard jet boat without one it flat handles better than anything I've ever been in and I've been in a lot of boats outside of Woldridge boats so it's definitely a must if you've driven another boat aggressively you'll know what I mean about the sliding and hop and cavitation those are the people who I love to take for a ride in mine who've been in others and it just flat oh they they, they start to prepare for a corner and get their eyes get big and they're getting yeah. nervous and then you go through that corner and they like I can't believe it just went through there that well feels so controlled it's unbelievable now I know when you guys were building my boat I didn't know what to expect when when we had originally started the customization and when I came into the the workshop I was kind of expecting to see a bunch of factory workers in a lineup you know what I mean and what I saw was I saw this amazing, it's almost like this artist studio where everyone has their own section. It's a huge workspace, but it's got a real family feel. I mean, how many people work back there? Well, including everybody in the office and me and my father, we have, t- there's 22 of us. Right. Yeah. And so I'd go back there and one of the guys would be, you know, cutting the aluminum pieces and one would be doing the welding and mm-hmm. one would be figuring out some painting and mm-hmm. they all are so busy in their own stations. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the thing that, probably stood out to me the most was the welding Mm -hmm. and just how intricate everything was. Mm -hmm. So there's welded boats and there's riveted boats. And I I don't know the advantages to a riveted boat beyond price. Mm -hmm. Are there any? In most cases, a riveted boat, it's kind of a a different application. It would be, yes, a a much more cost-effective, but they're they're a much lighter gauge, lighter weight boat. Um, Not usually something um, that's that's up to a lot of abuse or uh, 
uh, big water, so to speak. Fantastic for its application, a little lake boat or, or something like that, and even some jet boats that way. But you don't see the riveted in, in the heavy gauge stuff, which would where we fall into place. And welded definitely is a stronger application because there's, even with any uh, movement of the hull, you're not going to have any, any leaking through a weld. Mm-hmm. You know, where uh, a rivet it, over time, there's a point where <laughs> it's just it's going to give up its seal. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's where that would be different. In a mass production area, that's where the riveted boat might make sense. And that's kind of what you were saying there a minute ago is we're not a assembly line or a mass production, um, which there are a lot of boats which might be considered our competition that, that are they're definitely that. They're a mass production assembly line. And uh, that's where we, one of the things where we really set ourselves apart is I will sit in the same office with a customer, a potential customer, and we'll talk about the the total design of their hull down to the T, maybe total one of features and designs and shapes or something I'm going to do to make it work for for their needs, whether it's size or or parking it somewhere or just different features that they want to have in a boat. And then it'll go out to the build floor and I'll give it to the shop foreman and it'll be built in one spot. It's not going to be like moving its way through different weld sections. It'll sit there. So a guy, before he even starts the structure of this boat, has a vision of what this whole boat will be from the very beginning to what custom has to be done. Because there's a lot of things you need to do at the beginning of the boat to prepare for this weird custom fabrication that may be on this hall. So one guy, yeah, will has his own work spot and that boat will stay in that spot all the way through its fabrication and then it'll go on to the paint shop and so on and so forth so yeah how it how it's built to truly fit a customer's needs is a definitely a unique thing that is done here unlike a boat that kind of comes through the line and the guy comes in and buys this already built hall that maybe he gets to pick color or what kind of seat or electronics are on it (laughs) we're literally we can fabricate uniqueness right into it from the beginning. There won't be another boat like it on the river once it's done. Coming up, Grant and I touch on bow design, boat size, and safety. Again, just a quick thanks to Blue Sky World Leaders. You can say goodbye to rebuilding short leaders, untying wind knots, or changing leaders during a hatch. The furled leader allows the angler to tie on tippet sections as the only leader adjustment necessary. They cast beautifully, have a built-in stretch factor, loop-to-loop attachments, great prices, and a company who is small enough to genuinely care. Check them out at www.blueskyfly.com. I know that when you guys were building mine, I, I didn't expect when I came in to see so much happening in the floor of the boat. People don't seem to realize just how intricate the skeleton, if you will, of the boat is underneath the floor. Mm-hmm. Will you explain to me what all of that is going on down there? Yeah, absolutely. Well, just like if you were to... A lightweight bicycle, a racing bicycle, so to speak, is going to cost a lot more than your general go to Fred Meyer and get a, a, a cheaper bicycle. Or same thing with an airplane or a high-performance Formula One car. You pay for lightweight and strength together. They got to go hand in hand. You got to have them both. And so, um, one of the ways that we build our boats, we we have quite a bit of structure in these boats. And if you build a boat right, in my opinion, with enough structure, 
you can build the boat lighter than what a lot of guys, what, what I see a lot of boats out there in the mass production arena. I see them maybe using extra thickness in the skin to substitute structure inside. And, and don't get me wrong here, skin is absolutely so, so important in the thickness of the skin. But you can't sacrifice structure and rely on the skin for your strength, okay? So I, I, I'm a believer in the right thickness of the skin. But if you combine that with enough structure, you can build a boat lighter than someone who's relying only or relying heavily on the skin thickness. What I see a lot is extra thick skin and, and some very simple structure inside. And there's a few different names to describe what's common in the industry. But you could have the thickest skin in the world and the strongest welds in the world, but if there's areas where the bottom can move and flex and move around, you're going to start breaking these welds and you're going to have an issue later. And here you're packing around unnecessary weight with, this with the extra thick metal they're trying to um, replace structure with, in my opinion, for strength. See, because aluminum material costs less than labor does. It costs more to pay a guy to spend all the time to cut the pieces, to get in and out of this boat, and put the right amount of structure in there, in our opinion. If you do that, though, the end product can actually be a little lighter. It's definitely stronger. Well, what does that give us? Well, the byproduct is... We have better fuel efficiency. We have better payload abilities. We're going to float sh and sh shallower in, in, through the water. We're going to get on step easier with less power, all of the above. And so the byproduct is the key. That's why we do it. And then also, you know, our boats just don't have warranty problems. Any, any old person can go out there and look at our structure. You don't have to be an engineer or an architect to look at it and go, that looks strong. Mm -hmm. And the welds you see under the floor, you see that they're the same quality as the show weld on the side of the boat. All the welds are tough, and we spend a lot of time down inside of there. So yes, um, there's some photos on our website, and it's one of the things I love to show people who can make it here for a tour, because you're not going to see this at other, other boat showrooms or dealerships. I want people to be able to see this so if they get the opportunity to see what's under the floor of many boats out there, again, you don't have to be a boat person engineer to tell that there's a lot more going on in this. Now, it takes more time, but by golly, it's the right way to do it, and, and the performance and everything else is going to pay off for you. It's shocking to go out there. I would, I would recommend that anyone who's in the area come by and have a look. Absolutely. Even just the showroom. So what about cost, though? I mean, is that something that's a very real problem where somebody says, well, I could go buy North River and it's going to cost me X and it's substantially cheaper than Woolridge? I mean, are there other boats that are uh, still functional but way cheaper or are you guys pretty competitive? You know, when you really get into the, the, the more quality, heavily welded or uh, heavy gauge boats, we're actually really competitive as far as price goes. And I, we've been hearing that actually more and more often. That being said, I wouldn't be surprised if, if we're a hair more than, than some of them, just because, yeah, the, like I said, the, the labor costs more than just materials, and, uh, but it's the right way to do it because what I want is in 10 years when that customer calls me, he says, man, this boat's been so trouble-free. I absolutely love it. We've used it hard, been here and there, and it's just, it's just worked out fantastic, Grant. 
So the extra time we take now hopefully pays off for us in the future. It's not just I'm some commission salesman who's working in the, the Woldridge showroom for five years, then off to another job, and I don't care what happens to this customer in 20 years. Man, my name's on the side of this thing. We're putting our heart and soul into it so that I can have these repeat customers and build these relationships, and the boat doesn't give them any issues. And in fact, it makes it, it gives them performance that they've never experienced before. Um, but back to your price question, the price can be really whatever someone wants because we offer so much. We absolutely have some base models a guy can get into for really attractive numbers. Um, but it also can be like a, the fanciest truck on the lot. You can put whatever you want in there. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> What's the base price for somebody in the Pacific Northwest who doesn't want to do anything extreme? Sure. Well, our one of our most popular boats is definitely the 17-foot Alaskan, which would be the the little brother to your boat, April, which you have the 20-foot Alaskan XL, which is an extremely popular haul for many reasons. But we sell the 17 Alaskan all over the place, and we, we can't build enough of them. And so a 17-foot Alaskan boat, motor, and trailer, we sell many different brands of engines, Honda, Yamaha, Johnson, Evernote, Mercury, Suzuki. Uh, but say a 115 on our 17 Alaskan, which is a fantastic engine on that size boat, boat, motor, trailer, battery. This is a windshield model. You'd be paying 30-ish if you went with an open one, you know, 28, 29. Um, that, that would be your starting range. And from there, it just goes to wherever you want, whatever you want to put on it. And, and that does not mean you need to put everything we can offer because we offer... <laughs> Many times one-of-a-kind stuff, depending on what the guy wants. What is the advantage to a center console? So every jet boat that we make um, will off that haul, you can get in a front windshield design with our two-piece walk-through windshield. I'll, on that note really quick, unlike a lot of boats that have the three-piece walk-through, um, which we did years and years and years ago, Dad came up with the idea to do the two-piece because, for one, as soon as we leave the boat launch, the trailer, how are you getting in and out of this thing? Well, you're going in and out through the bow. Well, if we got to carry our cooler through there or I've got grandpa with me who's not as agile or whatnot, I can open up this huge door now and it's easy to get in and out of there, carry a cooler. I don't have to unsnap the canvas and hand everything over the top because we've made a huge gracious pass-through. And then in crummy weather with poor visibility, we have much better visibility with the two big pieces of glass and the three smaller um, that you'd see in a lot of three-piece windshield boats. Okay, So that would be our windshield and it is different than any other. When it's coming down the river, you can see it coming from miles away. You know that that's a Woldridge with the two big pieces of glass. And so those are the functional reasons why I really like it. Aesthetically or not, that's the functionality to it. So all of our hauls you can get with the windshield. You can get as an open tiller model, so you're driving the engine right there from a handle attached to it, or from a center console. And now on the open side of things, the center console or the tiller, this total preference. There is no right or wrong, though some people will tell you that there is. It's total preference. A lot of... Um, I should say many guides like the tiller because they're right at the back of the boat hopping between the main engine and the kicker and it's kind of their zone and they know that if they're always standing in the back they won't lose sight of a customer getting behind them um, like in a front windshield boat you want to make sure everybody's always seated when you hammer down the throttle and you always got to look back and check so a tiller handle um, there's some advantage to slow speed maneuvering with a tiller because you can really swing that engine back and forth quick 
I like a console like your boat. And I know tons of guides that also like the console. I like what I'm holding on to that steers this boat to be solid. I like to have my gauges there and my electronics and whatnot attached to it. So it's purely preference. Obviously, without the console, there's that much more room there because it's not there. But shoot, when we're fishing, you can fish all the way around that thing. And to me, it doesn't intrude on my space at all. But it's, it's total preference, not right or wrong. What are the three most common questions you're asked when someone's considering buying their first jet boat? Actually, I like to ask them questions. Um, I like to ask anybody questions. The more questions I can ask and get a real good picture for what they're going to do, hopefully I can aim them in the right direction. Is there something that you find is a common misconception? The biggest thing I would say is some people are nervous to have a couple more feet because they're intimidated by where this boat may they think that a 20 foot is going to be harder to take somewhere than a 17 and so what I'll always tell them especially if they're doing a type of fishing I mentioned before free drifting if at all they're vacillating between a 17 and a 20 year they're not sure they're asking me my opinion on that I'll always say the 20 just because the more bottom area is going to help you immensely. Drifting through, you're going to float through less water. There's more buoyancy there. Yes, there's more metal, so technically the, the, this hull weighs more than the 17, but the extra bottom area and displacement completely counteracts the extra weight of the metal and therefore allows me to float through less water, get up on step in less water, and actually I'm going to, because some people think they can take the smaller 17 through skinnier water. Well, once up on step, they'll run the same depth of water. But once we come off step and are floating into an area, that bigger boat's going to float through the, the skinnier water easier. And it's going to be easier to control in a free drift. So especially if someone's wanting to do that, that's where I bring up that. Now, if they're still totally need to stick with that 17 foot mark because they have a garage that only fits that well boy that's a great reason to stick with 17 well and they're a free drifter then our 17 alaskan xl gives them 16 more inches of bottom width than the regular alaskan and so anytime that you can get that more bottom area is going to help them in a big way now someone who's a fly fisherman and them and everybody they're shooting up river the 17 alaskan's just fine because it It'll, it'll get them where they want to go. It's going to handle amazing. And in fact, if we want to free drift with it, it flat works. But the more we can add more bottom, if we're bringing more buddies, if we're guiding, something like that, that's where how much bottom area really comes into play. I'm not trying to sell them on a, on a bigger boat, but I know that they'll be, I don't know how many times I've had guys come in and say, man, I wish I'd have got a couple feet longer. Mm. I never, it's very, very, very rare for someone to go, wish I had a smaller boat. Yeah. Very rare. I mean, I've had, my last two boats was a 20 and a 23. And man, I took that 23 places that some people would be nervous to take a 17. So if the boat is set up right and it can handle right, boy, you can take that in some surprising places. What would you try to suggest people do who are learning rivers and, and, and exploring all these kind of off the grid remote places? Sure. Really good question, and, and definitely one of the most important things to talk about. Well, definitely if we're going to go run some treacherous water, um, as we talked about slipping and sliding and whatnot, you definitely want a boat that can do what you tell it to do, where a novice can feel confident quickly and learn quickly because, well, it does what it's supposed to when you tell it to. 
the other thing is I'm I with with uh, going up a river. I, I highly encourage people to, if, especially if they haven't been up this river before, or even if you've run this river fifty times. Rivers change, um, water levels change, sandbars, gravel bars. They 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 move on you. And just about the time you felt confident in running a certain stretch of river, you could be running up it with all your friends now that you're going to show how neat it is. And you're all looking at the wildlife when you come to this corner, you've run 50 times and realize that it is now different. And you've got, you're on it too quick to make a decision and, and, it, and it startles you. So what we always tell people, dad or I, to run this treacherous skinny water that a lot of times you'll see in our videos or photos or whatnot, you have to have three things. Um, one, you got to have the right tool. You got to have something that does it and does what you tell it to do, which we mentioned. Um, two is you, you need to read water. Now that comes with time. A lot of people, um, maybe they've been a drift boat person all their life and they floated down river and well, they, they're going to have a better grasp on someone who's never been in a boat before. Maybe you've been a bank fisherman all your life. Well, you've been looking at the water. You obviously know where the fish stay and why they stay there and what type of water that's moving, not moving, swirling. So you're, you're reading water just being a fisherman. So learning how to read water is absolutely key. Whether the water's three inches deep or 20 feet deep, and if there's movement of that water, whatever's at the bottom, there will be evidence of it at the top. So that is a big deal. And it's always easier going upriver than it is down because you're climbing. Whether the river looks completely flat in elevation to you or not, it's always slightly going uphill. That's why the water's moving, because it's coming from a higher level and going down. So as you're going up it, you have two things that aid you. Your, your ground speed is actually quite a bit slower, because the water, say the water is moving at five miles an hour, and, and you need to have 20 miles an hour uh, water speed to, to, to be up on step, well, we're only at that point need 15 miles an hour ground speed and the water's helping us stay up. And so we can be approaching things at a slower speed than when going downriver because now this water's pushing us even faster and you might have 25 miles an hour ground speed at this point. And then going upriver, you can kind of see things better. You can read it better. So what dad or I would always say is if we're coming up on a section we haven't been before or that may have changed, don't get... Uh, overexcited. This would be one. The third thing you need. There's times you need to be aggressive, but not to be confused with being foolish. So there's times where I mean, almost every time, Dad was a good teacher of this with me. When we're up a river, we'd pull off 100 or 200 yards or whatever safe distance where there's a spot that's easy to pull up to a beach, and walk up the beach and look at this section. If we've got our waders on, we'll walk out and kind of he'd point to me, see over there, over by the bank, it's nice and deep right here. You know, watch out. There's that rock there. See, you can see the ripple that that rock is right there. Now, those ripples up there, that's just wind. But these ones here are this gravel bar and learning what that looks like. Why get over anxious and buzz up some river just because your friends are with you and not have the patience and hit something just because you were impatient. So always taking the time to know what you're about to go through, if not for your own sake, but especially the people you may have with you in this boat. So that was a big deal is stopping, walking up, looking at sections of river, knowing what the water levels are before you get to the river, even that day. If maybe there had been some floods or something like that, then 
then you do, do got to watch out for extra debris in the water. The water may be silty and not as clear. As far as uh, going up through a section, and, and it may be five, six hours or days later before you go back down. If you go up through something that seemed tricky going up, well, you know it's going to be even more going down. So right once you've come up through this section, a really good thing to do is to look back over your shoulder and see what it, that section you just came through looks like from the top and what the part that you actually navigated through looks like from the top. And if you have any question that you might forget, turn around right then in the deep water, run back through it and come back up. And those are all things that we've always done. Dad was always take your time. It's better to take your time and go through it confidently knowing that you're going through the right spot than just fly by the seat of your pants because a river sometimes can trick you. So those things are, are, are really important. And if you have new people on board who, who may be nervous, take it easy. Go, don't go doing some hot dogging or put in areas that might be dangerous and you know, have your PFDs for the kids and, and definitely you if you're running in some treacherous water. So those would be some of my first thoughts. Uh, is there any other, anything else you want to elaborate on as far as bow shape goes? Um, aesthetically, people like it or don't. It doesn't really matter because we have pointed bow boats as well if it's purely an aesthetic deal, but it gives us so much more room. Your 20-foot boat has as much square footage as a lot of 22 and 23-foot boats because we're maximizing the space. We're huge on every inch matters. We want to have the most efficient use of space of any boat. And we get that comment so many times. People come, they can't believe that a certain size boat is only this big. They think it's a bigger model um, because we're so efficient on our use of space and where it goes. Some misconceptions are people think of if the boat has a square nose is that it has a flat bottom. They see a square nose boat, well, that's a flat bottom boat. Well, no, it's not. None of our boats are flat bottom. We, the least amount of dead rise that we have in any boat would be your boat, and that's nine degrees. And that continues all the way up to the bow. Where the evolution of the broad bow or square nose came from is it actually dates even back to my great-grandfather building boats. He would put more flare in the front of the boats when there's bigger white water because it helps create lift um, when going through a boiler or something like that to help support weight and lift it. So when my dad started doing lots of the big white water runs and, and some of the racing, um, the big upswept square nose is comes from his big white water boat. So when you're pointing your nose into a big roller climbing up this river, big upswept broad bow does not get moved around like a pointed bow would or, or covered in water. In fact, it's a big chamber and it creates lift and then you, it lifts the whole bow and you can power up and through it. So that's where it evolved from. And it's not, that doesn't mean that our little 17 Alaskan is some big whitewater boat, but that's where that broad square nose evolves from is big whitewater. The byproduct is by keeping that square nose, you get more square footage up in the front deck for if you're fishing up there, hauling gear, getting people in and out. People up in Alaska love the thing because getting gear and stuff in and out is incredibly easy and it gives you a huge front deck. So that's a kind of the byproducts of what the, the square nose is. The pointed nose, um, you know, aesthetically, maybe that's what a person wants. Um, and in a pointed nose boat, I can increase the dead rise or the V in the front a little bit more than, than the square nose. So if a person's trying to have a crossover boat where they want to still have super shallow water ability to run very aggressive shallow um, rivers, um, but they want some bigger boat features for, well, for instance, in our neck of the woods, a guy loves to go fish the callets or the 
Skykomish and wants to do these shallow water jet boat rivers, but shoot, when the Columbia River buoy 10 fishery is open, he wants to go there. Now we're still technically in a river, but it's a big river and it can get to be big water. And so maybe a pointed nose boat where we increase the V in the front to give him better um, ride in the, in the wind, you know, the water where the, where the wind's ripping up pretty good. Um, so there's a lot of different things that we do. So each shape of boat has a reason why we do that. So that's why I would like to ask a guy a lot of questions before we just aim him somewhere. There is no boat that's perfect at everything. And, that, and that's one of the things that frustrates me sometimes is I see people selling a haul to a guy that they say, hey, it's great at this and it's great at that. It's like you're really getting something that's not good at anything. Rather, you know, you're, if you compromise too much, you, know, you can have a problem there. Where your boat is ideal for what you're doing, April. It's, it is. It's perfect. Yeah, it really is. Grant, you've got three beautiful daughters. Yes. Are you hoping that uh, one of them gets in the family business? <laughs> you know, it's that's totally up to them. I'm thankful that my family, they never once pressured me to be in the family business. No. In fact, they said, we want you to be happy, do what you want to do. And, you know, I did college and, and did a number of different things. And, and uh, the door was always open for me here. And uh, I, I started working here on my own and, and enjoyed it. I love working with my hands and I love people, so it ended up being a good fit for me. But I, it was nice that my fo I never felt that, that type of pressure as I assume probably a lot of family businesses might be. I'm so thankful that I have the opportunity. By all means, I don't take it for granted one iota, and I'm, I love it and I feel blessed. But with my kids, you know, it's, if, if they want to be involved, fantastic. If, if, they, if there's a different call in their life and they got special talents for something else, I want to encourage them in that too. So. I yeah. love it. You're a good dad. Oh, thank you. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Please be sure to leave a review about Anchored on iTunes. stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western oh, i'll be over there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv to go with like just full-blown redneck on these fish this is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here from the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters enjoy the best fishing panama city beach has to offer during chasing the sun sundays at 9 30 a.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment